You remember back in the days of the gold rush in Alaska and also in San Francisco, the 49ers, they crossed the Mississippi going out west to find their treasures, to find their wealth. They kept digging and a lot of them found gold. Many did not. Those that stuck with it and those that quote, were even quote lucky, they hit it big and they became very wealthy. And so you keep digging, you keep searching, you're going to find something. Yeah. Now, most Americans have a hard time with attention. The attention span of most Americans are very short. Would that be true? I think with technology, it has even shortened our attention span even more. Right. Yeah. Now, uh, let me give a suggestion here about attention span, how you can improve it. First of all, let me ask you, would you like to improve your attention span? <laughs> yes. Now, if you don't care, I might just pass that little free counsel I give you. But if you want to improve your attention span, read. Read. Now, read. Read. If you want to read your device, read your laptop, read something, just read. If you read, you're forced to look at the words and read each word or at least follow along uh, in a, a, a logical pattern. But if you just live by YouTube sh video clips, shorts, and things like that, and just, uh, it's, it's going to be detrimental to your brain, I think, and uh, you won't be able to concentrate as much. Now, I have a hard time concentrating sometimes because I think I'm a visual person and I like to see things happen. I like YouTube shorts. I like to see the, the wildlife and the kill and the heavy, getting off track somewhat, but not really so. I like to see the, the um, I like to see animals get killed by other animals. <laughs> and I like to see in sports, people get hurt in sports. Uh, I like the, the drama, I like the action, I like the carting off the football field kind of thing. It just appeals to me. I'm not sure why, but, um, and I tend to gravitate, and I kind of waste time, actually, confession, I waste time watching this thing, because you can go on forever. I also like to see uh, when people fail, accidents. Uh, I like to see unusual things that people do. Uh, those things get my attention, but I have to be careful because it kind of dulls my brain. It makes me just, and pretty soon, 10, 15 minutes have gone by, and I kind of actually wasted time over something that I enjoy seeing. So I have to pull myself back and you to, 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 to help your attention span to improve. You have to read. You have to read. While we were on our way um, uh, on the mainland, my wife has a book she brought with her from here, a paperback book. And it's about a military chaplain, a Marine Corps chaplain during Gulf War um, 2003. They came to Kuwait, staged there, and they went into uh, Iraq. It's about chaplain and how he was with his battalion and how he had to do so many different kinds of ministry among the, the Marines. It's a very interesting book. And reading that book was enjoyable and it was sobering because um, the life of a Marine Corps chaplain and dealing with the men and dealing with injury and death, it was very uh, revealing. And I realized that it's a good thing I can read and I can concentrate a little bit better so I can appreciate and digest what I'm reading in words. So that's what you can do. Learn to read. And don't be discouraged if you cannot read well now. I understand why you cannot read now. If you're in the public school, I understand. <laughs> sort of joking, but sort of not. Because um, you just need to today, in your life today, force yourself to read. And most of all, force yourself to read the Bible. Yes, the word is force. In fact, I will emphasize that to you. If you get the book of Exodus, 
you must force, you must make yourself do it. You must, have you ever seen a battering ram break down a castle door? Here's how they break it down. The enemy comes across the moat, across the bridge, and they knock on the door. They say, please open up this door so we can conquer you. Is that what they do at the castle? No. They get a big battering ram and they go, one, two. Wait, we got it wrong. One, two. And we're going to heave all gentlemen. Ready? All 12 of us. Ready? One, two, and three. And they hit that door with that big log and it hits it and it, it moves but doesn't break the big four by four or six by six, whatever's on the back side that's holding the door shut. They keep hammering away until the door breaks open and then they'll get arrowed and killed. That's the reward for breaking down the door. They got to keep doing it, keep going at it. And that's what you have to do. Folks, if you want to improve your reading attention or ability to concentrate church, I noticed that in church, people have a difficult time focusing is what we say. And I think there's a several reasons for that and I've already given you some reasons for that but we have to make ourselves we have to force ourselves to to improve our attention span it's a doable thing it's a doable thing and you'll benefit a lot from it okay so don't make an excuse for yourself to say oh, I can't read or I can't concentrate well you need to make some steps to improve that okay all right all right I'm not going to make you raise your right hand and say, I swear this morning I will practice. No, no. Just you do the best that you can. All right. So Exodus, uh, from Psalm 119, I think you'll find great spoil in the book of Exodus. you find a lot of symbolism, as I say, a lot of teachings, a lot of prophecy, a lot of things that apply to the New Testament Christian from an Old Testament book called Exodus. Now, the book of Exodus is written by a man named, how do we know this? It is true, Moses wrote the book of Exodus, but how do we know that? Well, quickly, turn to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Now, we know and we believe as Baptists that the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit, yet God used man to write down the Bible. And so in John chapter 7... Come to verse number 19. And let's back up to verse 14. John 7, 14, working our way down to verse number 19. John 7, 14. Now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters? Having never learned, how is it possible for this carpenter's son to speak so well and with such understanding of the Old Testament law? How can he speak with such comprehension? How can he tell us such application? How is it possible that he he hasn't been to a formal college? He he doesn't know, but he does know. And so they're marveling about him. Now look at verse number 16. Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine, my teaching, is not mine, but his that sent me. So right away, Jesus has identified himself as, I have come from my Father in heaven. So what I teach you is what my Father, 
wanted me to teach you. I come bearing news from a heavenly country. So when Jesus spoke, he spoke what God wanted him to speak. He conveyed truth that was his fault, not his own creation. Verse number 17. If any man would do his will, he, would, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. Verse 18. He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory. But he that seeketh his glory that sent him, the same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Verse 19. Here it is. Did not Moses give you the law? Did not Moses give you the law? So Jesus is saying, I affirm and I say that I know that Moses wrote the law. The law is the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's five, the first five books of the Old Testament. Moses is giving credit as the human author of the, the law. And so we know that Moses wrote the book of Exodus under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And many things in Exodus prove that he could not have been, it could not have been written just by a man who had the ability to write and to put down things accurately, historically, and factually. It had to be something else behind his writings because it points to prophecy, it points to types, it points to symbolism that reflect Jesus Christ. No man could have written these things unless there was something supernaturally guiding the hand of the author. So the human author, you have to have a human being write it. You, you can't have a Bible without someone being an instrument. So the instrument was a man. The author, we say, the one who penned it was a man and men. But behind that was a hand guiding. Behind the hand was an unseen hand guiding his hand. And that's the Holy Spirit. And the more you look at the Bible, the more you realize, oh, yes, this cannot be just a man-made book. All right, so uh, you find some spoils, uh, good spoil in the book of Exodus. And uh, Egypt, of course, is where Exodus takes place. Much of it is. And then they transfer over to the wilderness. But uh, Egypt models, Egypt models the world system. Uh, the Bible says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And for the love of the fall is not in the world. First John 2, 15. And then uh, look at Titus chapter 2. I'd like you to see Titus chapter 2. As far as a background or a survey or a introduction to Exodus, uh, a lot of it takes place in Egypt. <coughs> and Egypt represents something. And so one of the spoils you find is that there's a lot of symbolism of what Egypt means to the New Testament Christian. And you find this to be very true throughout the New Testament. Titus chapter 2, verse number 12. Uh, this is the Apostle Paul who writes this. And he says, Titus 2, 12, Timothy, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Teaching us that denying ungodliness, and there's that word, worldly lust. Now, worldly, Egypt symbolizes the world. And the world is not just the physical world, but it is the world view, the philosophy of the world. And when something is worldly, that worldly thing is something that is akin to the world. It is at home in the world. It is something of the world. It's not of God. And you realize that the world itself, now in our time and previous times, in Jesus' time and before Jesus' time, the world was a symbol of carnality, a symbol of rebellion, a picture of anti-God. 
So when something is worldly, it is like the world, which is anti-God. It may not be manifest in a physical violence anti-God, but it is in philosophy certainly anti-God. As an example of worldliness, if a person, uh, let me, what can I pick on here without you getting upset? Because surely whatever I say, you're going to get upset about. Oh man, I wish it was not like that. Because you talk about worldly things, it affects everyone. A worldly Christian, wait a minute, how is that possible? A worldly Christian. Um, that is not actually accurate. But this is accurate. A Christian is someone who is saved, but he is practicing living, living out the Christian life. Okay, that's a saved man who is a Christian. So that's like a the per, the progress, his lifestyle. He's saved first of all, but then he is following Christ. But you can be saved and not follow Christ. So think about this and be sure that you understand what I'm saying. You can be saved and not be a Christian. In the sense that you're saved, but you're not following Christ. Christian is like saying you're a little Christ, a young, a small Christ. You're a follower of Christ. They were first called Christians in a city called Antioch in the book of Acts because they were, they gave up their idolatries, they gave up their pagan lifestyle, they gave up their hedonism to follow this new thing called Christianity. They were first called Christians at this place called Antioch. So they were saved, they were saved, but they were also Christian. We say that as if it's not, and it really is. So when you say, I'm a Christian, we understand what that means. When you say you're saved, we know what that means. When you say you're born again, we know what that means. But technically, you can be saved and not be a Christian in practice, okay? I hope you understand. Any questions on that? So, worldliness is about saved people who are not living a Christian life. They are saved, they're going to go to heaven, they're forgiven, but they're living a life of the world. So, the... I hope I'm getting off track, but in the New Testament, when Paul writes to the Thessalonians, to the Corinthians, to the Colossians, to the Ephesians, there's always this battle between the world, the saved person, and Paul trying to get them to not be worldly. He's trying to get them to not be, he says, don't go back to the former lust of your former conversation. Don't go back to the days when you were unsaved. Don't go back to when you were not a Christian or unsafe. Now that you're saved, be consistent, be determined to live the Christian life according to the Bible. And his battle was with that. Save people going back to the unsaved days because you can do that. <laughs> Let's think about that for a second before we get back to Exodus. Can you be saved and go back into the world, go back to Egypt? Can you be saved and still not live as a Christian? The answer is, of course, now, please don't say, yeah, or, yeah, you know, I mean, I mean, yes is the word. Yes, you can live as an unsaved person in the world, but you're saved. You're, you're saved, but you're not living a Christian life. It happens, it's very common, it's, it's not a good thing, but it happens. So, what I want you to see is that... A saved person can live in the world. Egypt portrays that. Where you are living for yourself. You do what you want to do. And you disagree with what the Bible says. And you know it's wrong, but you're stupid because you enjoy it. There's all kind of examples to give. I'll give you one just to help you realize that in your own life, it can happen very subtly. And it can happen. And it's a lifestyle for you. 
and you think nothing of it. Um, okay, here's an example. I'm trying to think what's the best example to use without it. Uh, let's see. Okay. Okay, you know what I'm doing. I don't do it, but I'm showing to you what people do without thinking. Now, I am smoking this Expo pen, which is like a miracle. Doesn't taste very good. I need a, I need a donut. Now, when I get saved, I may not give this up because it's a habit. You know, habits are hard to break. But when I realized that my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, then I cannot, I cannot do something that hurts the temple of God, the body. The body is not sacred, but it is. The body is not special, but it is. Because the Holy Spirit lives in you. Now, I don't think it would be enjoyable for the Holy Spirit to say <laughs> like that. Any more than, is it appropriate for you to walk in the church? Can you imagine walking to Sunday school and uh, here comes Stan. Doing that, sitting back there smoking away. And I say to myself, are we on fire? And he's back there smoking. I say, hey Stan, what are you doing? He says, oh, I'm just enjoying my, my cigar, my cigarette. I say, you know, you put that out. This is church. That we say this is church because we're here to assemble as Christian. But the church is the people in a, in a place, right? But this is representative of what the church is. So it would be very inappropriate for him to smoke in church. And so, but he likes to do that. Now he doesn't, but he likes to do that for my illustration. And so it is something worldly. Everybody does it, he does it too. And let's, let's, take, let's take this example here now. Beer, beer drinking among Christian men or saved men is very common nowadays. They like to drink beer. They have beer or whatever. And then other people like to go down to Waikiki and party and do all kind of things. And they enjoy doing that. A lot of people like to go around where there's people in modestly dressed. They just like to do that. Well, that's of the world. But they like doing it. And so Paul struggles with Christians who are going back into the world. They're trying to be worldly. Egypt represents the world. Okay. Now music can represent the world. Could it not? Music can. Now, here's the part I want to be careful about. When I was a, a boy growing up in the 60s, I didn't grow up in the 60s. I grew down in the 60s. When I was growing up in the 60s, it was the Beatles invasion, the British invasion. Everything is Beatles and Mick Jagger and, the, and the, the Rolling Stones and everybody else like that. And so that was my, my decade, the 60s, which is um, not anything to brag about. The 60s was a decade of drugs and everything else they called free, but it wasn't free at all. People paid for it with their health and other, other things. But uh, uh, I, I was in the world too before I became a Christian, and I liked the Beatles. I liked the Beatles because the guitars, it appealed to me. The, the strumming, the guitars, that kind of stuff, it appealed to me. And so I didn't know why I liked it, but it was probably the guitars. But I used to buy Beatle albums. Remember the, the vinyl albums of 78? Is it 78 RPM, the big ones? I had a stack of Beatle albums. And uh, anyway, I, I liked it because as an unsafe kid, you know, I, I, like, I like to uh, examine the lyrics and see what they're talking about. And then they got into the rock, they got into the druggy stuff, they got into the Hare Krishna, and uh, that kind of just turned me off. But the simple things, you know, they, of the of the... The, 
the elementary things, it kind of grabbed it to me. I didn't think it was so bad, but then when I got saved, I began to realize, you know, that's that's of the world. And you know what I did in my records? We had a record-burning night with the teenagers. Yes. Uh, 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 we So we gathered all, it was a big deal. We gathered all of our records. And whoever had records, and you'd be surprised how many kids had records. They had 45, they had LPs, they had all kinds of, the same thing that I bought. We brought it together somewhere in the yard. We put it, we put it, we lit it with gas. We burned it all. This was our token that we are gonna not be worldly. Now, we, you may not do that today, but uh, that was an expression of, we don't wanna be worldly. We don't wanna go back to Egypt. So when you look at Exodus, they were in bondage for 400 years. Several generations for 400 years. And then the deliverer comes, Moses, and then he leads them out. God does plagues and God does miracles and he breaks the arms of the false gods of Egypt and they cry uncle, or actually they cry, oh God, okay, let the people go, yes, yes, yes sir, yes sir. When? Soon as possible, I hope, we want to be relieved of all these disastrous things were happening to our environment and to us. And so he leads them out through the Red Sea and the waters part, you know that story, they walk on dry ground, come to the other side, and that's Moses doing that. And he brings them out of Egypt. Now they're on the other side of the Red Sea, they're in the wilderness still, but they now have a new life. They're no longer in Egypt. And yet, listen to this worldly thing about what uh, Egypt portrays. Some of the people, most of the people on the other side of the Red Sea in the wilderness heading toward the promised land, they want to go back to Egypt. Incredible. That's not how you back. They want to go back. They're going, they're going from Egypt across the Red Sea. Now they want to go back. To what? They want to go back to the world. They said, I don't like it out here in the wilderness. Let me dramatize. I don't like it out here in the wilderness. What we when we were in Egypt, we had flavorful food, the onions and the garlic the leaf. It was so tasty. Did you know that with the airport in Las Vegas? What a place. Slot machines at the airport. What a place. But we ate at a breakfast at a, where's Miranda? Wendy's. Wendy's. Had something I never ate before. It was a sausage, egg, biscuit with Swiss cheese. It was the best. Of course, when you're starving, anything's the best, even cardboard. <laughs> even the paper in the box and the cup. I got one of those. It was so good, I got another one. I ate two of them. She ate one, ate two of them. It was so good. It was so flavorful, so salty, it was so juicy. And the Hebrew says, oh, we want that again. We don't want this bland manna, bread without butter, bread with no flavor. It's not, uh, it's a little bit sweet, but uh, we want the salt, we want the garlic, we want all the flavor. They want to go back to Egypt, want to go back to the world. And so the Christian, the Christian, the same person wants to be a Christian in practice and lifestyle. He has left Egypt. He has been redeemed. They have been redeemed. This is the symbolism. They've crossed the Red Sea. Uh, there was the blood sacrificed to free them, to finally get Pharaoh to say, okay, go. The death of the firstborn. 
And so they cross, they're over into the wilderness. They're going to move on. Their life has begun a new life. They have been emancipated. They've been free. No more shackles. No more slaves. Now they're free people. But they long for the stuff of the world. And if you're not careful as a Christian, that can happen to all of you. You want to go back to the world. Let me make another illustration here. I'm way off my notes here. Yeah, I'm way off. But you need to remember that your heart tends to want to go back to the world. And you need to have some deterrence, some fences, some barriers, some walls to keep you in the right place. And if you're not careful, you find yourself longing for that flavorful Swiss cheese sausage biscuit from Wendy's. So good. Not good for you, but it's so good. <laughs> and so Egypt represents the world. And it's very true even today. Be careful. Be careful what you eat. Be careful what you digest spiritually. It'll get you unspiritual. Now, I hope you can stay for 1045 because I am preaching some things from Exodus. Now I'm just teaching. And there's a difference between teaching and preaching. But Egypt, a good portion of Exodus is about Egypt, but it's also about types of Christ. Types of Christ. Uh, the word here is typology. The study of types or symbols that represent something else. And there's a there's a strong there's a strong series of types that say, oh, that reminds me of Jesus Christ. Oh, that reminds me of what Jesus did. That's a type. So in the Old Testament, a lot of types. In Exodus, a lot of types. For example, in the Old Testament, a type of Christ would be Moses himself. Moses himself, that great idea, is a type of Jesus Christ. We'll get to that in a little bit. And then you have the Passover lamb. Remember the Passover? The Passover lamb? Exodus 12, that is a type of Christ. So in the New Testament, Jesus, Jesus refers to that, to himself. Jesus in John 6 is called the Lamb of God. Remember that the Lamb was required, a male Lamb without spot or blemish was required to be the sacrificial Lamb for the Passover to protect the household from the death of the first angel, uh, the, the death angel from the death of the firstborn of that household. Without the right kind of sacrifice, there was no protection in that household of the Hebrew or the Egyptians from the death angel. He'd come at midnight, and he would, the word is slaughter. The word is slaughter. The first one of that family, which would be the eldest. And so that would happen unless there was blood applied to the door. But not, not just any kind of blood. It had to be the blood of a lamb, so on. And it's a very fascinating study. Jesus Christ over here says... I'm the Lamb of God. John says, John Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God, which take away the sin of the world. So there's a real parallel. There's a real symbolism here about what Jesus Christ is and would do. There are some spoils to be found in Exodus. Good ones. And then the crossing of the Red Sea, the man in the wilderness, the smitten rock, the tabernacle itself. Oh, the tabernacle. Oh, can't wait to get to the tabernacle. Tabernacle. That might be the greatest type of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. The tabernacle, the construction of it, the furniture, the materials involved, 
the placement of the the, the brazen altar, the laver, and getting into the Holy of Holies, all these things, I hope you can make it to 9.30 in this month of August because it will remind you that the Bible is the inspired Word of God and also remind you that this book, this book here is so unique, especially any other book. Who could have foreseen all the things that Christ would fulfill when they wrote it over here unless it was divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit? And you need to you need to pull yourself back, make time to see these things. It'll it'll help you to realize you've got a very special book right over here, and Jesus Christ is seen in the Old Testament. Some people say don't read the Old Testament because it's old. How crazy is that? <laughs> don't read it because it's old. No, no, the Old Testament is in the New Testament, and uh, you you see that you know it's really fascinating. Uh, I hope you can be here for every Sunday for that. Now, the contrast between Genesis and Exodus. Genesis, first book, Exodus. Genesis is about one family. Exodus is about a nation. A nation. Genesis is about a few people, and Exodus is about millions of people. Genesis, Genesis, uh, the Hebrews are welcoming to Egypt. At what point? When were the Egyptians welcoming the Hebrews in Genesis? What, what family is involved here? Well, I'll just tell you. Remember that uh, Joseph was taken to Egypt as a slave, sold there as a slave. He goes up, rides with prominence, God promotes him. And, oh, by the way, I will tell you this. Uh, like with Joseph, Joseph is the type of Jesus Christ too. Like with Joseph, Joseph just minded his own business. He did the right thing. God was uh, always at the center of his life. He obeyed God. He, he honored him. And God honored Joseph. And God blessed and prospered him. And Joseph, in prison, was so respected by the prisoners and by the jailkeeper, he gave him the keys to the prison. How how unusual is that? Can you imagine Halava? Oh, Francis, he's, I've been watching for six months. That guy is so honest. Here, here's the keys. That'll never happen in Halava. <laughs> Because you can't trust the guy. Look at him. <laughs> but Pharaoh's servants, the, 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 the guy who holds the keys, he, he saw enough to believe. And the testament saw has been, and God was with Joseph, and God was with Joseph. And he was a goodly man, and God was with Joseph. So here's the lesson learned right away, without being part of the lesson. Whenever you seek ye for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things should be added unto you. You and I as Christian people, as saved people, live the Christian life and do the right thing regardless of what anything, you do the right thing, you honor God, God will honor you. That's how it plays out, okay? It's not, I, if I give to God, he give, it's not that at all, but he does. He does. Do you know that, oh, here's something I want to pass on to you along that line. I don't want to lose that train of thought. Um, Nathan forwarded to me an email from uh, a Gulf Coast Bible Institute in Florida years ago. 30 years ago, I ordered some materials from them. It was very helpful. Mr. Tab, H.M. Tab. His wife has cancer. His wife has cancer. Uh, several cancers, according to the email. So I called the number that was given on the email. And that information is in your church email bulletin. You need to look at that. Please look at that. And um, you can donate through. They, they have a GoFundMe uh, thing set up. But also, they have one through their... Gulf Coast Institute website, we donated through that. I tried to go through GoFund, and GoFund wanted some some uh, tip. tip 
I said, what is that all about? I want the whole thing to go to them. So here's the th- what I'm trying to say. We, we felt like we should help with that. So, and then I, I feel like maybe some of you should get involved in that too. That's why it's in the church bulletin for you to respond to that. For sure, pray, but also if you could help in some way. So we sent them some money, and I talked to the the, num- the, the person's number. It was the son-in-law of Mrs. Mrs. the Tabs. And so uh, he told me, and I said, oh, I can't get whatever. He straightened it out a lot. He said, okay, you can also go to the, the Gulf Coast Bible Institute website, which I did, and it went fine. No no tip was required. <laughs> and so they got the whole thing. Well, we did that because we felt like we should and felt we could. Now, look, I'm just trying to explain to you. When you, when you, when, when God gives you and you give, what did the Bible say? What did Jesus say? Give and it shall be given unto you. I, I know several men on the mainland who they inherited the church with a lot of debt. And so the pastor, the new pastor came over and uh, he helped them out of debt. And after two, three years, hundreds of thousands of dollars was relieved of the debt. And, you know, everything was good. There's one in California, one in Florida. And in those two instances, they had a lot of debt. And so people left the church because whatever reasons. And, and then, uh, but they had to try to rebuild and restore. And through following the Bible and doing some biblical principles and being generous, they pulled themselves out of debt in two or three years. Now, what I'm trying to explain to you is that if you, if you follow what the Bible says and you, and you practice some things and you honor the Lord, He will honor you. And so, um, I don't know how I got on that one. <laughs> Joseph. Oh yeah, Joseph honored the Lord and the Lord honored him. Then he gave promoted to, um, of course, the dreams that he had with Pharaoh. He interpreted the dreams. God gave it all to him. And then uh, after a while, he became second command. He became the good vice president. He became the good vice president to a, a kind of good president. The Pharaoh was not hostile toward Joseph. He appreciated Joseph's wisdom and how he had a God who helped him. And he was not hostile toward Joseph's God. Which is kind of an unusual thing. So, he's way up there. He has authority. He has power. And if you have power and authority in the wrong hands, that's very bad. You got power and authority in the right hands, that's very good. Well, it's in good hands now because Joseph is there. Joseph maintained his integrity. Joseph never, Joseph never stopped being a Christian even though he wasn't a Christian in the Old Testament. I hope you understand what that means. He never stopped being... Faithful to God and God honored him. Eventually, his whole family came to Egypt, all seven of them. And this is to say that in, in comparing each uh, Genesis with, with Exodus, in the case of Joseph coming to Egypt and his family, the Pharaoh of Egypt welcomed them. But in Exodus, the Pharaoh of Egypt, the new Pharaoh, despised them. He wanted to make their life harder, gave the materials to us inferior. Um, it was all Chinese goods, you know. Inferior materials, cheap quality stuff. They couldn't make brick like they should. And it was very, they had to work and produce, have a quota, but they couldn't do it right because they were given cheap materials. I was kidding about the Chinese quality, all right? Don't look at me like you're anti. No, you're thinking too much. You're overthinking. And so, and so, uh, they despise and then kill the firstborn, kill baby boys. Not firstborn, kill the baby boys. And so, all of that is to show a contrast between Genesis and Exodus. It's really interesting stuff, okay? Now, watch this. The Lamb was promised in Genesis 22. The Lamb was slain in Exodus, chapter 12. You have entry into Egypt. Then you have escape from Egypt. Those are the, some things to just note in passing about our introduction. Now, chapters 1 through 6, I need two minutes more. 
In chapters 1 through 6, you have the need for redemption. The need for redemption, which is to save everyone since then, has a need for redemption through Christ. And then you have enslavement, Israel and Egypt were slaves to sin. In chapter 7 to 13, don't have to remember all these things. God's power to redeem, the death of the firstborn, the plagues first, and then uh, the Passover, God's power to redeem. Need redemption? God can do it. Then you have in chapters 14 through 15, the crossing of the Red Sea, God's power is shown like that. Boy. If you thought um, some of these bodybuilders had power, and some of these guys can lift up tractors, tires, and, and carry 50 yards and come back and pull an airplane like that, uh, you think that's powerful? It is physically, but God exercises power by parting the Red Sea. Wait, I'll have to stop at this point just to get you a little bit. He parted the Red Sea at the last moment. Not only that, he kept the waters parted. Number one, he parted the Red Sea. Number two, he kept the waters up. Number three, the ground is dry. That's a miracle. That's a miracle. He kept the waters up. They went through, two million people went through to the other side. The Pharaoh says, oh man, I, I wish he hadn't let them go. He goes after them. He, he remorses his decision. He's got buyer's remorse or seller's remorse or freedom remorse. He says, no, bring them back home. Oh man, what, am I, what was I thinking? Must be that cannabis that affected my brain or something. And so he goes after them and the water's held up. Billions of tons of water, can you imagine? Uh, I, here is here's the Red Sea. This is the path. I just go like that. This is the path, and there's water all over here on both sides of them until you get to the other side. And there's billions of tons of water. It's like that. Now, I don't think it was frozen. I think there were, it was water, and it's kind of like trembling or wiggling like jello. And as they went through, they said, I don't understand that. I'm not going to move on until I understand that. No, they just kept on moving. And then Pharaoh comes through. He looks over here, looks over here. And his captain says, uh, sir, I, I don't know about this, but this is this is unusual. Get going. Let's get those guys back here. We can't let them make us lose face. And they go after them. And you know what God does? God says, okay. Gabriel, you ready? Should I should I tell the water to come down? Gabriel says, uh, just a minute, Lord. Um, there's still some Egyptian stragglers, you know. And so, uh, wait, till they, wait till they get in the middle. The Lord says, okay, wait till they get in the middle. They get in the middle, and the, and the Lord says, so now? And Gabriel says, you're not making this up, right? Gabriel says, now. The Lord says, okay, water, come down. And all that billions of tons of water comes, can you imagine, comes crashing down? I don't know if you can imagine that or not. Over in the Big Island, there's a place. Nathan, what is that place where the water hits the, the wall but down by uh, Kalkakua? Around there. And there's a place where the water just hits that rock and it splashes up like 20 feet. You know, I guess that. Can you imagine tons and billions of tons of water coming down like that? And did you know that they have found some residue of, of uh, chariot wheels in the bed of the Red Sea? Now... I kind of don't put a lot of stock in some of these archaeological so-called findings, but there is good reason to think that, okay, okay, it happened like I said. So that happens, and this is the cross the Red Sea. You have the means of redemption, the blood sacrifice. You have redemption's demands. 
They are to obey the Lord. The nation has to not only get the law, but they have to obey the law. And then there is the provision for failure. I end over here. Provision for failure. Okay. Provision for failure is found in the tabernacle. The tabernacle with its sacrificial systems in place and all the, the exact things to do, the rituals, all of these things, uh, it is really provision for their people's failures. And you remember that once a year, the high priest goes into the Holy Holies and sprinkles blood on the, the mercy seat once a year for the nation. That is provision for the people's failure. You should be glad that there is provision of failure even today. You and I fail, which it happens a lot. None of you here can say, I have arrived. I'm as Christ-like as Christ is. You big dirty liar. <laughs> so that's the progress that you're on. But until then, you have provision for your failures. Okay? First John 1, 9. Right, I have to stop over here. I hope you'll be back next Sunday for part two of Exodus. This is better than watching TV, you know.